Okay, now what do we think students will find interesting to read? Or what do you think, or what do we think will matter to them the most? So we're filtering it down to so many levels. And then we're seeking out or coming up with ideas for articles um, to write about. But then at the end of the day, we don't know if we're accurately representing something or if we're, ap- if we're representing a need for a certain type of information. Are we actually giving students what they want to read about? Are we just our tiny group of students who are the editors representing the general ideas or what people want to read about, want to learn about and everything? Hello, everyone. My name is Aroni, and I am the opinion editor for The Medium. For today's episode of The Message, I sat down with Professor George Wooten and Aya, our ear-to-the-ground columnists, to discuss an issue that is very close to us. What makes something newsworthy? Professor Wooten is actually the professor for one of my courses this year, which is Media and Politics, where we learn about a lot of things that we will be discussing today. The news media plays a critical role in passing on information to the masses. But there are many layers of nuance and complex politics that influence and shape the kind of news we get access to. As a student newspaper, we are a part of this too. Before we begin, let's hear a little bit more about Professor Wooten and Aya. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, this is kind of fun. It's always nice to have a have an opportunity to chat casually about things and to get to talk to people outside of the formal structures of a classroom setting. Um, even though this is still a Zoom session, that's okay. Uh, So my name is George uh, Wooten. Um, I'm a sessional lecturer at University of Toronto, Mississauga. Uh, I'm currently teaching media and politics and my interests are broadly defined as political communication and how political communication connects with other aspects of politics like public policy or political action or what have you. What got me interested in it is a phenomena in in the literature known as blame avoidance. Governments frequently do things that are unpopular. You know, they have to take stuff away from people or they put burdens on people like a carbon tax or, you know, they cut. They, They do a variety of things that might be considered unpopular. And my interest has has been and for whatever reason i'm not even sure why but my interest was well how do they try to get away with doing things that people don't like and that led me into this literature in in the the sort of scholarship called that that revolves around the idea of blame avoidance how do governments try to avoid blame for doing things that they anticipate will generate problems for them and sometimes what's really interesting is when they get it wrong and something comes up that they weren't anticipating as being a problem, and it ends up being a big problem. And then, so there's this whole literature that tries to deconstruct or take a look at, at the ways that they do that. Uh, that's kind of my interest. That's what got me interested in, in media, because obviously media and political communication is a significant component of the blame process. If you're going to construct blame or avoid blame, you hopefully want to shape media or news coverage of what it is you're doing. Um, so that that was my sort of entry point, oh, so many years ago in the Jurassic era. Um, now, in terms of teaching, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how honest you want me to be about this, but um, this is something I tell, I, it's usually a story I tell in class where 
originally the family business for me is law. I was going to go into law. But the thing is, is that I realized at some point that I'm not interested in law and I don't like lawyers. So why would I want to do that as a field? So I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was sitting through a particularly boring poli sci lecture this one time. And I thought, I can at least be that boring, you know? So then I thought, well, what about being a, a university lecturer or prof or something like that? And that got me on the path trajectory to where I'm at now. So that's, that's who I am. <laughs> How relatable. Yeah, that I is so relatable. I do not like lawyers. <laughs> I could never. <laughs> My name is Aya. I am the ear to the ground columnist for this year of the medium. Uh, last year, I was the opinion editor as well. And I also took Professor Uwin's class last year during the pandemic (laughs) and learned a lot of very interesting things about how the media works and how it intersects with politics. Uh, And I'm just, I guess I've always been interested with how, uh, like the inner mechanisms of media, just because we always talk about it almost very abstractly and we blame it as if it's not like this big system made up of all these different parts that work together. Um, And the byproducts, you know, usually have very long histories of how it came to be. Uh, We're just like, ah, the media is, you know, spinning this article or whatever, when it's more so about specific mechanisms. And so I've always been very interested in how different things come to the forefront in media. Following Professor Wooten's introduction, I wanted to know a little more about his experience teaching about media and politics. Specifically, if there were any profound or significant moments in his own learning experience, and also if he's ever been challenged or learned something from his own students. So I'll I'll give one of each if you don't mind. One is sort of a generic, what I find interesting about teaching, and then the other one is more of an academic thing. I came across in my, I don't remember when it was, to be honest, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't give you any context beyond some time. I came across a little book by a guy named Murray Edelman called Constructing the Political Spectacle. And his argument was that media help construct politics to us and they make it a spectacle that generates meaning and all of these sorts of things. And it was funny because I'd always, so this is why it was it was it was a eureka moment for me where i'd always been reading i guess this was in graduate school to be honest because i was thinking back now as an undergrad you always read about oh political parties or political theory or ir and they treat everything like well this is just descriptions of reality and what edelman did is he opened up the door to the idea that the perceptions that we're getting are based on politics works on two levels. There's the actual distribution of benefits and burdens that are being assigned or distributed. And then on top of it, there's this spectacle, there's this constructed nature of reality that is that we all sort of experience. We don't, most of us, unless you're a lobbyist, unless you're a, an interest group that's there at the point of decision-making, we don't actually get to experience that. What we get is what Edelman referred to as the spectacle. And it just like 
for me, it was like this light bulb went off and I had this eureka moment where it's like, oh my God, this is exactly what I've been thinking politics works like. And here's somebody who's actually explaining what I think back to me. So I just thought that was this revelatory thing that was really exciting because I'm an, I'm, an, I'm an academic nerd. So being able to, to get a way of understanding my own thinking, it almost like legitimized it in a way for me because here was this academic who talks about symbolic politics and the role of myths and all these other things that I always thought were interesting and part of it, but I never found anybody who talked about it. When I did, it was like, yes, yes. Um, so there was that. And, you know, I, I think what I enjoy about teaching is being part of a process for similar types of experiences. Now, the remote thing makes this a lot more difficult, but um, every now and then, and this doesn't happen frequently, but sometimes it's very, but I find it very rewarding when it does happen, is somebody will talk to me about come to my office hours or in class or something where they're trying to, they're either struggling with a concept or they're trying to work something out and having a dialogue about it. And then all of a sudden you can see in their eyes, the light bulb goes off and they have this rev, like, I get it. See, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about that now because if and when that happens, it's a remarkably powerful thing. I'm not causing it in any way, shape or form, but to be part of that process for somebody to like, get that eureka moment the light bulb goes off it's it's fantastic i love it i love it to you know and, th and that's kind of what keeps me coming back is is anticipating or trying to be part of that process yeah i'm just gonna say like i love those connections because i also study sociology um and there's so much overlap obviously between the forces that go on at, that you study on um, in sociology and in political science mm -hmm. and to just see kind of how it all breaks down in those two different spheres is it's yeah it's really interesting how interconnected so much of it is so a question to get us started to throw us into this topic of newsworthiness how often do we all check the news? And I mean, checking the news can count as everything. Like it can count on our phones, in the actual paper, online, if we actually seek it out. But on a general level, how often do you guys check the news? I check Twitter maybe 20 times a day, but I don't know if that's news. Because <laughs> uh, I also use Twitter just more so as like an entertainment thing but in terms of like actual news at least maybe like four or five times a day depending on what happens and you check the trends and stuff like that but in terms of like reading specific news articles i'd say for me that's a bit rarer um i don't necessarily just glaze like you know gaze at the headlines and then just skip over them i usually if i am trying to look at news i will go in and read the article but i've i've also during the pandemic kind of distanced from constantly checking and reading articles uh because that's just <laughs> that's just not productive in any way during a pandemic yeah absolutely like i know for me 
I usually have all the alerts for all the news applications on my phone on. So I'll get like notifications like 25 times a day of their headlines. Um, and otherwise, oh God, yeah. yeah, otherwise it's usually like Instagram, you know, as I'm scrolling through my feed, I follow all the news platforms. And so they'll usually break down the article into like little um, snippets or bullet form um, information and like quick to get news. But if something really does catch my eye and I'm just like, oh, this is a bit either disturbing or really interesting, then I will like seek it out. Um, but yeah, definitely during COVID, um, I, I have all the COVID alerts switched off because it was just getting a little bit um, depressing, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I don't do, I, I, I check the news in the morning and then in the evening. Um, I only look through CBC, so maybe that says something about me, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a self-defense mechanism to turn off COVID-related material because on the one hand, the news is very repetitive. Oh, more infection. <laughs> so it's, there's no need to be constantly bombarded with the same information or, or variations of the same information over and over again. Uh, you know, I, so I, I think it's important to, for people to be able to get some distancing from this stuff. Um, and I, I generally minimize my social media contacts and for that very reason. I, I, I feel like, well, because it's all based on attention, you know, they, they want to get your attention. That's how they make money. I feel like having too many social media things, you, I, I'm losing control over my own consumption habits. I'm, I'm giving it to Twitter or, you know, or, or, or the big tech companies. So that's my personal bias with the whole thing is I, I, I tend to want to have a control over my own decisions about where I'm looking and when I'm looking. I don't want to be constantly pinged with, oh, here's another story. You might, you know, no, I leave me alone. <laughs> you know? But I'm a grumpy old man in that regard. So. No, I completely relate to that though, because I've had to turn off notifications for every app except maybe Snapchat, because <laughs> I don't really get that many snaps. Um, but especially for like yeah. Twitter. I've just yeah. mainly now used it as a way to check in with some of the online communities that I'm, that I'm a part of. So like specific book fandoms or whatever. In terms of the news, I can't check Twitter because I don't know, there'll be like Niqab will be trending and it'll just be a plethora of racist things or people being outraged at the other racist things. And I'm just like, I can't deal with this today. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my outrage quota has been filled, I don't need more of it, yeah. Listening to Professor Wooten and Aya talk about the handing of power and control to social media platforms for the kind of news we get reminded me of a very important crisis that happened a couple months ago and that is still ongoing. I was talking to a friend of mine who was from Afghanistan about the news coverage of the Taliban takeover. While the Taliban were inching their way towards Kabul, I would get alerts on my phone from the news publications and my family would be checking the newspapers and websites, but none of the social media accounts of those same news platforms were sharing this information. At least not until the Taliban actually took over. And this goes to show how filtered the news is, or more specifically, how different news is presented depending on the outlet. People like me sometimes, and like many others, who rely on social media to get news are getting only a fraction of what is important, or 
only the news that will get likes and shares. Another more general question is like, when you read the news, what types of stories are you drawn towards or what catches your eye when you're scanning the headlines? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, obviously media is, is a huge amorphous blob. Uh, I, I do tend to be particularly interested in more political things. So, um, you know, my I, I have set up my, uh, I, I will I will admit to this, uh, CBC online, they, they do send me the email uh, update or whatever, one, uh, once in the morning and once in the evening that just flags for me what's relevant politically that's been going on. So it gives me kind of a window into if, do I want to go to the website or not, or do I want to turn on the TV if I have some time or look at, and that, you know, or have the TV on while I'm lo looking at the internet to see if it matches up or if not, how it doesn't. And, you know, really, I, I like, this is my personal thing, but uh, if something that I, I consider relevant or significant is going on, I will do a more in-depth dive of it. A, a lot of what the reporting is, is just, oh, this person is doing this about that, which eh, th that's current events, which is fine. But particularly if somebody gets into trouble, I love that. But blame avoidance, right? So I, I try to see the, the blame game and the contest unfold in real time to be able to go, ooh, or the PMP cycle, you know, starting where somebody eh, does something which creates a change in the political environment, which the media then latch onto and try to talk about to transform what's happening. And they can really accelerate the process from there. Because again, like if, if you don't, if you're a political actor and you're not in the media, you might as well not exist, right? So. For our non-political science um, listeners, would you mind going a little bit more in depth of the the politics media politics cycle. Sure. Yeah. That's, yeah I'm throwing coarse content out here <laughs> because, you know, I was just looking at something. So the, the politics media politics cycle is something that a guy in our, it, it's from the textbook that I've forced everybody to read. And essentially it's a model that the guy has, the, that wrote the textbook has sort of been a proponent of, and he's kind of developed it to say that, look, you know, it's an imaginary thing to think that the media create or initiate political events. They generally don't. Political events happen first, and then uh, media reporting of those events can accelerate and amplify the nature of political changes that might be occurring. Then what happens is that, so something happens politically, the media report about it, and then what you get is the following political reaction to what the media have done. Because let's say I'm a government and I've done something dumb, say. The media will, that's a good story. It's newsworthy. So, right. And so they'll write about it, especially if it's somebody powerful who's done something stupid. So they write about it. What that means is that other politicians will see that and then jump on it. My opponents will all of a sudden accelerate and start attacking me to try to amplify the attack, to undermine me. I, on the other hand, and my allies will be like, ooh, that's bad. So we engage the media to try to, to avoid blame and stifle the story or to get control of the story. So, and then the media will in turn report about that activity. So you have this continuing politics, media, politics cycle. 
about the things um going back to like what we're attracted to I don't know if for me what it is is like specific topics I'm more interested in how things get framed um and how people then react to that framing and how some people resist it or how some people just completely um feel validated by it um so I feel like whatever the topic is, it could be a student issue, it could be, um, you know, more of like a politics issue or whatever. The way that things are framed, I find really, really interesting, especially when, um, if it's an, if it's, I think a compelling enough topic for me, I will then go out and maybe just do a little bit of research and then maybe compare that to both the framing and the research that I just did about say like, I don't know, um, what, what Toronto might do with like homeless people and their, I don't know, their policy on that and then how the media is framing it. And then if that's actually effective or not um, sociologically. And, and I just, yeah, I think that's the biggest um, thing that draws me in, which is how are people interacting with the framing? You know, if you look at news across the world, like they're all so different. I know North American news especially is very sensationalizing and it's a lot more, there's a lot more theatrics and entertainment involved in when the news is portrayed, especially on TV. Um, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> How does CNN that... doesn't feel real to me. Like I get it, you know, I, and I can't even begin to understand Fox News, <laughs> but like, yeah, you're right. Especially American media. It just seems like every kind of trope you would see in a movie, but it is happening in real time. And even just like the difference between say Canadian, like the CBC, like I watched the national at night and it has a very much like milder tone than what CNN might bring with uh, like Cuomo or something. It's very, very different. And I'm consistently shocked at I don't know like the energy and but also like the kind of presentation it's it's really funny to me so the, the, there are a couple sorry I'm gonna put on my academic hat for a couple of seconds here but go ahead the the idea of spectacle again going back to Edelman and saying that news it, it, it's a constructed political spectacle is part of that. There are always performative components to politics. Politics, when some, you know, everybody says, oh yeah, the information revolution with the internet. You could argue that the biggest information revolution that we've had was the advent of screen-based politics, the television first. Now we have computers that are still screens where moving visuals became how we as the spectators experience politics. Now, if you're listening to, if, if, if your primary consumption of politics comes through radio where you don't see anything, but what you hear is a voice, that's a very different experience than seeing some politician guy talking on, on, on either YouTube or the television or on your computer screen. And the idea that it's become a performance is actually quite prevalent it because the idea is that image matters how you deliver something matters so they politicians who can afford it have 
media training. They have people who train them on how to convey a, an image. Now, the, the thing about CNN and Fox is that they're their own universe of what happens. News embodies different things. It's not, there, there's reporting, which is what everybody I think intuitively thinks of when they hear news. Oh, it's reporting about what's happening. It should be objective and neutral and whatever else, right? But CNN and Fox are getting away from that into more commentary. They're commentary oriented networks. And the idea of the commentary is that they're trying to give their audiences what they think their audiences want, which is an over-the-top performance of, we're going to shriek about how horrible what the, like for, from the CNN side, it's how horrible the Republicans are. And from the Fox side, it's how great the Republicans are and how horrible the Democrats are. And, you know, the issue of bias, for example, comes in, but as long as they're being factually accurate in their commentary, the bias is so obvious that everybody knows like what Fox's agenda is. Everybody knows what CNN's is. So who cares? They're biased, sure, but so what? The bigger issue is, are their audiences misinformed? And I haven't seen a lot of data on CNN, but Fox routinely shows that their audiences are somewhat misinformed about the nature of what is happening. That is a cause for concern. Um, but it would appear that infotainment, the idea that th they are catering to audiences because they are for-profit enterprises. So they're giving what they think audiences want to be able to attract as many eyeballs as possible. And CBC has, has done the same thing. Uh, if you take a look at some old footage of from back in the 1950s or 60s of what CBC News used to look like, it's not what it is now, you know, it's a lot more glossy now. Um, and part of that is, is due to the fact that they've had significant funding cuts as a public broadcaster. They've had to start to become a lot more commercial and therefore attract eyeballs, attract audiences. So they're trying to be more engaging and entertaining. That is up. very true, yeah. That, um. They had like these projection things for the election a few weeks ago. It was, yeah, it's, it's very glossy, very flashy. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the horse race to heighten the sense of anticipation to get people interested in what's going on. One of the most common frames is the horse race. Who's winning? Who's, who's behind? And it was ridiculous where, I mean, with, with the election that nobody cared about, <laughs> you know, they, they were devoting this huge block of time to covering the, the, the election. And from the very beginning, I mean, which would tell us nothing, they were playing up and trying to say, oh, this is still very early. And we're, you know, but we're still going to tell you that the liberals are ahead in 30 seats. It's only by five <laughs> votes, but they're ahead. They're ahead. <laughs> and I mean, oh, OK, but, you know, so anyway, yeah. So the horse race, the game, you know. It was so funny how they were trying to frame it. It was like, the conservatives are now going to come back and like Justin Trudeau placed his bets wrong and he's just a power hungry. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we get it. Worst yeah. time for an election. Nobody really cares. Um, it was, yeah, it's really funny how they were just playing it up. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, they needed to try to stir up interest, you know, get people to watch it. Um, I remember you talking like specifically about when we were talking about how certain news channels are going more towards commentary about how there was an experiment where uh, participants were given a Fox News article and a CNN article, but just or were watching a clip and had their logos changed and mm-hmm. were asked to give their opinion, uh, mm-hmm. but they couldn't tell which was mm-hmm. which. But just the fact that whatever logo was on it instantly triggered an emotional reaction and was interest, inst- instantly distrusting whatever the other side was saying, even though it was actually said by their own supported news platform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, messenger, the messenger can overwhelm the message. So the content to a degree doesn't matter. If you see something is coming, it, so that in, in, in popular culture, Fox and CNN have come to mean things. They're labels of a particular type of news or journalism or whatever you want to call it, commentary, whatever. And that acts as a, as a cue for people. When they see the logo, they immediately, their brain immediately starts to interpret it in a particular way. And this, this is a, the, the whole point of a lot of this is that it highlights that we as, as people are unreliable narrators in a lot of the discussions about things like bias, because we're so susceptible to our own things, our own subjective cues and everything that, you know, we really have to go out of our way to make sure that we try to control for that stuff when we're studying it as, as, as scholars or academics. Yeah. Yeah. That's a funny one. I, I love just, showing how amazing people's and and it's our brain that does that to us you know it, it we're, we're amazing I think one of the funniest things is just how illustrative that is to how incredibly powerful our need to feel part of something is like humans are such a group and like social species that we have to just completely fit everything we do into some sort of in-group or out-group dynamic. Um, I think I was talking to a friend about this once about how like 20 years ago, people were thinking like the internet would make us like globalized citizens and that we'd be able to, you know, become really much more like open and um, yeah, just like be able to take on much more like bigger scale uh, discussions or cultures or whatever and how incredibly like that's almost basically failed (laughs) because we are just so incredibly cemented in how our brain works because we were made for smaller groups and that to zoom out on such a huge scale um, to be a world citizen, just we don't have the capacity for that. It's not so much that we don't have necessarily the capacity for like empathy, I think, though, um, or to understand. I think it's just like we can't possibly have enough empathy for every single issue. I think this is the problem, too, um, with like social media. And there's like this whole thing on social media where you're shamed for like not observing every single um like tragedy that isn't necessarily talked about on the news. Like um, if 
I don't know, like you, you can't possibly have enough empathy for every single issue. Um, there are things that speak to you specifically because of who you are. And there are important things that are much more um, based on like, I guess, um, human rights and stuff like that. But yeah, it's like, I, I do not understand where this shame comes from, where it's like, you must be not only like a participant, but more so just like a witness to every single tragedy online. And you have to post about it at the very least, which becomes then performative, but also just completely drains, um, I think people of that ability to not only like empathize, but also work on things, work locally, because it just drains them of that hope. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, it, those are all really good points. I, I think that we do engage in motivated reason. We, we, do, we do things for reasons that, that satisfy our individual needs, whatever those may be. Um, but the thing is, is that social media companies, like social media is corporate media. They, they have incentive structures built into how they're doing things to make money. Not, not to create a better public sphere. That's not their goal. The goal of, of Google and Facebook and everybody else is basically to make money. And they're soaking up all the advertising dollars in the media realm. It, it's going away from broadcasting to online and social media. And the thing is, is that, you know, in the absence of regulation or some other goal like I, I wonder what if there were social media companies that were publicly interested and incentivized other types of behavior what would those do now I don't know what that would look like I'm not I'm just throwing this out and you know that try to let people divide into issue publics where whatever your constellation of interests are you can find a community there because we do ultimately have to be part of a smaller community and then we can maybe do what's known as bridging capital where we can make linkages with other groups that, that we may want to align with. But if, if the companies that we're delivering, if the platforms that we're delivering this material to us that we consume or prosume, you know, what would it look like if it had different incentive structures? Would it be possible to somehow get people to overcome the sort of the, the parochial tribalism and all that other stuff? I don't know, but I think we're definitely seeing the effects of the incentives that are built into the current approach. That is definitely true. It's like the medium is the message in that sense where it's like the medium also, um, <laughs> yeah, I threw that in there. <laughs> no, but yeah, like it is the limitations of the structure too that we engage in. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Like for example, we at the medium, we publish every week, every Monday, our issues. Um, and sometimes we have themed issues. So for example, we had a mental health awareness issue or we're having an indigenous um, celebration issue. Um, but because it's weekly, we think it's pretty quick already, like the process of like submitting, editing, publishing. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, like actual corporate publications published like by the minute and yeah. um and we meet like as editors every weekend to discuss 
pitches for the articles that will be coming out the following week. And in the process of selecting pitches, we're already selecting it based on how many pages our news issue can even fit, uh, yeah. how many articles can fit in the paper. And then we're basing it on, okay, now what do we think students will find interesting to read? Or what do you think, or what do we think will matter to them the most? So we're filtering it down to so many levels. And then we're seeking out or coming up with ideas for articles um, to write about. But then at the end of the day, we don't know if we're accurately representing something or if we're, if we're representing a need for a certain type of information. Are we actually giving students what they want to read about? Are we just our tiny group of students who are the editors representing the general ideas or what people want to read about, want to learn about and everything. And especially as opinion editors, we're the most commentary based section of the paper where it's much more analytical, much more discussion based. And so, yeah, so like, I, I never really considered it before, but now as we're well into the year and to the semester, I always had to think about, well, why am I not choosing some things to write about? And why am I choosing others? Then why is my team agreeing to publish certain types of stories over others? Um, and why do I even have that consideration? Um, yeah, and I think that also speaks to the need for representation in journalism, right? Um, and in newsrooms about, because it, it gives that dif different perspective. Um, I will also say like, just to add my two cents, which is when I was writing in my first year for the medium, it would always have to be through the angle of, well, how do I relate this back in some way to making it relevant to the student body? Um, so if I wanted to talk about a world issue, it would also still have to then connect in some way to, I don't know, student, um, student politics or we as like students and how we should view the world or what we should do to act or whatever. And I feel like you'll see this a lot with, um, I don't know, like you'll see, we need to do this better. We need to do that at the end of my articles, which is more so pigeonholing that into, you have to be relevant to a specific audience. Cause yeah, we are a paper for UTM, um, but it also doesn't necessarily allow then for a much wider discussion um so yeah it, i i definitely felt that both as writer and as editor aroni which is yeah. how how the hell do you sometimes just take a topic <laughs> and then have people care about it um or make it like frame it so that um you have people that will listen or that will read it another thing that's like coming after me as you're talking is what our position is in the whole system of journalism? Are we like some form of authority figures that are like deciding what kind of information to share to our readers? Or are we just lackeys of whatever is already out there and we're just kind of um, passing it on? You're, you're both. Sorry, you're both. I mean, you, you and, and <laughs> the big news media, if, if I can call, there's no such thing, but it's, you know, and, and this goes back to an original comment about how everybody treats the media like it's this homogenous amorphous blob 
when that isn't really what it is. It's just we have nothing else to call it, right? So the thing is, is that editors are opinion leaders. Now, what that means is that the, there's a theory called the two-step flow of information. It's probably incorrect. It's more of a multi-step flow. But look, the big stuff happens and you get, why do you know about certain things? Well, you've probably read about it somewhere in the big media, right? So you think, oh, that's an interesting thing. We should look into that because it may have implications for our readers or who you think your readers are. That's known as proximity. Um, for something to be relevant, you have to make it proximate to the experience of your audience. It has to be close, whether it's geographically or whatever is the case may be, but proximity equals newsworthiness. So what you're doing by being an editor, sorry, I, I feel like I'm mansplaining here, which is horrible, but it, you know, so you are, you're, you're picking stuff up from there and you're doing your own thing with it and distributing it out. So you're not simply you know, being a channel of, oh, there, you know, this news organization is saying this, I'm interested in, I'm going to verbatim repeat what they're saying. That's not what you're doing. You're influenced by what they're saying, but then you're passing it on and your readers will be influenced by what you're saying. So you're doing a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, and that's okay. Editors are important gatekeepers in the news system because you don't have infinite resources. You can't talk about every single thing that's possible, so you have to have some selection criteria in how you choose the stories that you're going to pursue. And I think the fact that you're, that you're self-conscious and willing to ask, oh, why am I choosing? Well, yeah, that's great. You know, more editors should probably do that. And it probably means that you're being fairly cautious and careful about your selection criteria. I think that's great. So pat yourselves on the back. <laughs> It was at this point of the discussion when my friend's cat started meowing and scratching at the door, and all of us had a nice laugh about it, but it inspired a particularly interesting thought from Professor Wooten about the impact and resonance of live media and broadcasts. You know what, I, I, just to throw a thing in there, uh, mm -hmm. people do like it. When, so one of the things about, about us all being remote is, is that when little things like that happen, people, the audience, or the other participants like it because it makes everything more real it, it, you know so I, I don't know if you've seen the <laughs> the videos of of like uh on youtube or whatever of interviews going bad where yeah there's one in particular where there's like this guy trying to do this high level talk i think he's on a news thing and his kids come busting into the room on bbc yeah and yes. there's the one kid who comes wheeling <laughs> in in his in his little you know and that's awesome and the guy looks like a jerk because he's like you know he's trying to get everybody out of the room like just go with it man like you know hold the one kid have the other kid and just continue <laughs> talking about what you're talking about like make it you know just roll with the punches it, and i so yeah so i felt so bad for his poor wife she's just like well, barely yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean you know i mean eh. so yeah <laughs> Just let it go. It's great. <laughs> Especially great. animals. Everyone, yeah. everyone I feel is like just excited to see an animal on screen. Exactly. Absolutely. If there's yeah. some, you know, naked dude walking around behind <laughs> you, that's probably not awesome. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, a cat, you know, 
you know, a dog coming in and jumping on you. You know, that's all fun. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about an important thing that we discussed in my class with Professor Putin, which is the impact of four cognitive biases that we have while both consuming news and producing news. Firstly, we have an implicit bias, which are stereotypes that we have and use to make sense of the world around us. We have a confirmation bias, where we prefer to have everyone agree with our point of view, and we like to read and watch things that we agree with. We have a biased blind spot, where we don't think we ourselves are biased, but everyone else is. And lastly, we have naive realism, where we tend to overestimate the amount that we think we know about different subjects. This results in what is known as the backfire effect, which has to do with correction and inaccuracy. People who believe a certain inaccuracy push back against fact correction and double down on that inaccuracy. So I asked Professor Wooten about the glaringly obvious implications of that. Yeah. Well, I think the implications of it are kind of, like, obvious and bad. <laughs> I mean, um, the misperception rate is, I, I haven't seen recent information on this, but one of the concerns that there's a, there was a, a guy, uh, a scholar by the name of Stephen Cull, who years ago published a really famous piece on misperceptions about the Iraq war. And he was, he's always been interested. And uh, uh, there's a new uh, scholar who's sort of taken the, 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 the baton, um, Nihan, I think is the name, who does a lot on misperceptions and actually coined the idea of the backfire effect, where the standard idea of, oh, the way to fix misinformation is to post corrections. Well, it turns out, no, that doesn't actually work. So the, because the, the, the effort at posting a correction backfires and people will go, will reject the correction in favor of my two plus two equals five belief of the world. So yeah, it poses a really considerable problem if you have people, like think about this, you have large segments of the population running around who are completely misinformed about the nature of reality. It becomes a significant political problem if you have different people gathering information from different sources and let's pretend they're all equally misinformed. So not only do you have groups of people that don't agree on the nature of reality, they actually don't agree on the incorrect nature of reality that they're believing. How can you govern? How can you create a positive form of politics that can actually try to fix society's problems when you have large segments of the population that are completely walking around that are objectively bewildered about the nature of reality. Yeah, it, you know, it poses a significant challenge. I don't know how we fix this, but the issue for news is, I mean, try to be accurate. Don't let, I mean, I, I think that the most important thing is don't let the misperceptions take hold initially. Try to avoid that. So, you know, it's a pretty high bar, but uh, yeah, it, it's a major problem. And it goes back, those, those biases that we talked about, the implicit bias, confirmation bias, naive realism, and the bias blind spot that we talked about in class are all part of motivated reasoning. You know, you have people that are motivated 
to think about something a particular way because they have an ideology or a value system or something that informs, it creates a frame or a lens through which they view all the world. And if anything comes in that contradicts that, get, get it, no, doesn't fit, get it out of there. So you have, you know, people that believe in some of the more whacked out conspiracy theories, for example, are part of this phenomenon, you know? So anyway, yeah, no, it's a major problem. And we, we frankly don't know what to do about it because we're just starting to come to grips with the fact that this is actually happening. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this stuff? Like <laughs> you, you're the people that are actually responsible for getting the material out there. What, what do you think you would do? I would you like to go first? <laughs> I'm just uh -huh. sitting there like, I have no idea. Cause I am remembering like in, um, I took that psych when I took a psychology course, they were talking about just how sticky first impressions can be and how they will continue to even inform later impressions that you make. So if you have a bad impression with someone, um, but then you meet them two, three, four times later and they're fine, you will still still like hold on to a small part of that first impression, that first mm -hmm bad impression where maybe they were having a bad day and so they were you know kind of rude um but they're actually lovely or whatever and yeah i think it's it's really hard because we do have those kind of psychological um like mechanisms that bar us from taking in when you were talking about how people will reject information that contradicts i was remembering how the human brain is just really bad at holding two opposing um, truths or realities. So it has to pick one and it will reject the other. And so if you've, if you've already have like one belief um, that you've picked and that you hold on to very dearly, and then there's new information that suggests that the other thing is true, your brain just can't believe that other thing because it's already invested and believed that one thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, it's such an ingrained issue just because of how we're wired as people. Um, so yeah, I think like one of the only things we can do is to try as best we can to have as many checks as possible before we get something out there. And then when it is out there and say it, it still has an inaccuracy to like, I mean, at the base level, maybe, yeah, print that, I don't know, retraction or that correction or whatever. But I really, yeah, I just have no idea because it's so ingrained. And <laughs> we were talking about misinformed, um, you know, political citizens. I was just, all I could hear was like Socrates or Aristotle just yelling. <laughs> and while I don't agree with that, you know, elitism of like, a philosopher king or something it is definitely one of the biggest issues of democracy which is if you're not informing your public and if you're not educating them well and if you can't agree on a reality based on fact then the political system does break down mm -hmm. i i would even sorry I, I but one of the challenges that i think we're seeing as well is that even the elites themselves are recognizing that misperceptions can be exploited for advantage. Mm -hmm. So we're on a pretty, I, I think what we're seeing is a pretty 
negative circular downward spiral with a lot of our political discourse. Especially yeah. when you said when political actors can use that, I immediately Trump. And I can't believe that that started in 2016 and I was only 16 years old and now I'm 21 and he's still around <laughs> and he still <laughs> makes the news. And there's still articles talking about how he might run again or Ivanka might come back or Donald Trump Jr. Um, and how they will continue to use the base that they have you know, garnered uh, for their own political and economic gain. And just, uh, yeah. what a scary world. <laughs> well, the, the question is, th there's, another, there's another issue with do people actually, th there is a different way of looking at this that doesn't make it better, but makes it different, where um, people don't, th there is some evidence that people don't remember facts or even incorrect facts. The idea is that, well, we're what are known as cognitive misers. We're kind of lazy. Remember, committing something to memory requires a considerable amount of effort. It does, you know. So we tend to remember things that we're interested in. So there are people who can't remember who, I mean, a lot of political information is not relevant to how most people live their lives. It just isn't. But what, you know, the, the, the who's the leading scorer on the Raptors might be because sports has been positioned as more important. So, okay, people remember stuff that pertains to their job or whatever, you know? So the thing is, is that if there's a politically relevant issue that happened that emerges over here, people will get, and this, is, this goes back to the, the thing that sparked this was the idea of the first impression, is that people will get an impression about the, about the issue from whatever exposure they get to it. And then it becomes a, a, a positive negative valence thing where, oh, uh, I'm exposed to this. I don't like that. So you might have an initial reaction against the government's carbon tax or something like that. And that becomes your position. Now it's based on impressions. And then everything that you get coming in you attach either a positive or a negative value to it. And then you get rid of whatever the information is because you don't need it. But what you have is this cumulative positive or negative or neutral impression of something that evolves over time. So it might be that people are forming an initial opinion or impression of something based on limited initial information you know, it's the first step of persuasion is to give people something, uh, is to get people to form an opinion where they didn't have an opinion before. And then, and then people's affective integrator, the positive negative thing starts to kick in. And if there is something that contradicts their, you know, so it, it, the carbon tax is horrible. And if you ever come across somebody who says, well, the carbon tax is actually a good idea, you're going to be like, mm -hmm. no, you're going to be resistant to that, because that no, that can't be right because then I'd be wrong. So yeah. it might be more superficial in nature than what some of the scholars are talking about because one of the early findings is people don't know very much. Like factually people are, so people are misinformed but they're also uninformed to begin with. So maybe we need to be a bit more 
nuanced. Sorry, when I say we, I mean scholars. We need to be maybe a little bit more nuanced about how we talk about some of these things. Yeah. And I think it goes back to our psychological makeup too, which is yeah. how like we are also more likely to at least hear out someone's contradictory opinion if we perceive them as coming from our own group, right? Holding mm -hmm. the same beliefs we do. Um, and, you know, thinking the same way or having the same ideology. Um, and we trust their judgment a little bit more than the other person mm -hmm. um, that, that we perceive as not. Um, so, yeah, I think that is very interesting about. It also, I guess, highlights just how emotional we think, you know, we do not. <laughs> That's the, I, I think like the funniest thing I heard is like when you sit in the, like an economy class and they're like humans are rational beings and they think through like rational things and I'm like that is I I have not seen that anywhere we are just so completely guided by emotions usually um that it, yeah because yeah it takes a lot of effort um to think through things and to research things and then to form a very you know educated opinion yeah uh the oh now I don't remember who it was I I used to research public opinion a lot there was an academic who basically said that look people are we are reasoning but not rational so generally what happens his his argument I don't even remember who uh, Popkin it might have been Sam Popkin the reasoning voter maybe I, I don't don't quote me on that all of you out there in podcast land don't quote me on that <laughs> but uh his argument is that we make an initial opinion based on an emotional knee-jerk reaction to something whatever the stimuli is we react to it now we know we're supposed to be rational so what we do is we make an opinion i hate the carbon tax that's an emotional response because I don't like burdens. I, I don't like, like tax for me is like this trigger, right? So I hate it. But the thing is that's an emotional reaction. And I'm not saying I personally have any opinion about carbon taxes. I'm just using it as an example. Um, <laughs> and then what we do is we construct a rationalization aft to justify our pre-existing opinion, you know? So that's where the reasoning comes in. Oh, uh, yes, it makes things more expensive. That's mm. why, right? Mm -hmm. And But on the other side, people on the other side of the equation do exactly the same thing. I like the environment, oh, anything to, you know, so they make an, an emotional reaction in favor because the government says, oh, this will help us fix the environment. So people go, yes, they latch onto it. And, and, but that's an emotional reaction. It's not thinking through the, the, is this a good policy or not? Like, are you kidding? You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it gets me thinking about how, like, because we're all human, there is no such thing as objective journalism. Um, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> and I think that's gonna, that hits hard. Like whenever I bring it up to anyone that I know who's involved in student journalism, because there's a huge idealistic, Thing around journalism sometimes in some peers that I've noticed they'll be like oh no you know we're gonna be the truth tellers and we're gonna we're <laughs> we're gonna write objective factual reports on what's going on but I'm like that's just unfortunately not possible because of just 
the fact that we are human, but also the fact that we're all emotional creatures. Um, and even when we write reports, we're writing it with our voices, which are influenced by our own biases and our own emotions. Yeah. Absolutely. But what, so what does objective even mean? I mean, I, like journalists, I will say this, journalists around the world adhere to the idea of objectivity as an important principle to try to adhere to. It's, it's aspirational. But is your coverage balanced? Are you deliberately omitting particular points of view that you disagree with? Uh, are you being as factually accurate as you can be? Those are things that I think uh, should people should pay attention to. And as long as you're not deliberately putting your, your finger on the scale to shift the story a particular way, so what? You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, because the, the, like you, you've talked about it yourself, is that decisions are made all through the process that, that, that suggests something is happening. You, you know, so anyway, yeah, no, I, I, I've, eh, objectivity is overrated. <laughs> so the grand question of the day, what makes something newsworthy? <laughs> what do oh. you think? What makes something newsworthy? Just off the top of your head or the initial reaction to what makes something newsworthy? Well, I, I, sorry, but, but I think you, you've already talked about something relevance to, to your perceived audience, I think is, is one of the most important components of, of a news organization's definition of newsworthiness. Because, so here's the thing, you can't publish about everything, you have to have selection criteria. What criteria do you use? you know, and you're immediately going to try to put yourself in the headspace of who your audience is and try to say, okay, let's try to make it as proximate as possible. Um, impact. Why is it, we talked about it before. Why is COVID everywhere? Because its impact is enormous. It's immediately newsworthy. Um, novelty. Is it new? Is it contemporary? Is it current? Um, prominence. Who is doing it, right? Like if, so again, like if the prime minister does something, so if it, or if, if the Ontario government all of a sudden were to announce free tuition, that would have multiple things that would make it newsworthy to you. On the other hand, if, you know, a backbench MP, MPP from somewhere in Northern Ontario that nobody's heard of, sorry, uh, talks, has, puts forward a petition to try to make tuition free, eh, might not be as newsworthy, even though it's a it's a relevant issue. But also, can you tell a story? It does it does it lend itself to a storytelling narrative? You know, so I I, I think there are multiple components that go into decision making. I think the story thing is especially interesting because we are so drawn, like just as a species, to stories and yeah. with frames and like so many things uh we create stories about ourselves create stories about other things like other people mm -hmm. other institutions even like if someone like cuts you off um when you're driving or something you create a story about how you know they're a jerk and how they're just completely like you know a bad person and Revenge they don't care fantasies. yeah exactly <laughs> no. but it's like maybe 
maybe they're like rushing to the hospital or something their wife is giving birth or like there's (laughs) there are so many there are so many things that like in reality could could be the reason for this one action but we need to attach meaning to it um so we just create a story about it yeah I think that's really interesting do you think that in this day and age when a lot of us have our our attention spans have decreased do you think that affects newsworthiness or do you think that affects the value of something that we consider newsworthy or how much attention we give to it how much dedication time and effort we give to covering something that would say 20 30 years ago be covered in a different way i'm wondering though have i don't know because i'm completely like not necessarily informed on this but i do wonder is it that we have decreased our attention span or that our attention is being demanded by more and more different things and so it's more so a issue of like um distribution of attention rather than necessarily the attention span i definitely think it's both i definitely think in some ways a lot of our patience has decreased um but in other ways it's also because there's a constant demand by everything around us by technology by social media um, and just by the 24-hour news cycle that requires our cons- or like that demands our attention, that demands our dedication, our empathy, and a lot of our energy. And so I think, I think that's what's more factor that goes into how much time or how, or how much value we give to something. I think clearly something's changing, but what uh, it might be six and one half dozen of the other, maybe it's two different ways of talking about a similar phenomenon. Because what is happening is that the frequency of, of attention seeking material pinging, right? I mean, we saw it when I got an email ping, I was like, Oh, I don't know. So <laughs> what that be, you know, so I'm doing an interview or this, this lovely thing. And all of a sudden, th- it leaps into my head that I have to see what that was. You know, that shows something was affecting my attention. Um, I, I would like to think so, and, and this is something that I think is a different type. I think there are different generational effects. I grew up and I came of age and my brain formed prior, well, before even the internet. I mean, I was in my master, I was in fourth year of my undergrad before email became a thing. No, imagine that. So for me, my, my information habits are such that I, I deliberately avoid a lot of the churn that's out there because I'm not, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I, you know, I'm not interested. I think though that people are drawn to what they're interested in. And I think this is why sometimes weekly news is a value because you can provide more depth. It is not possible to provide any depth in 240 or 280 characters can't do it you can provide a link to something and that link may give more depth but the attention span thing is interesting is how many people click and actually read the thing that's connected i don't know that would be a that would be a methodological way of trying to figure out what's happening um 
But if you're interested in something, you can follow it on social media and get the flow of what's trending about that thing. And you're not necessarily more informed, but you're able to, oh yeah, you know, you may be more interested than in daily material that can give a bit more depth. You also may pursue, you know, video essays that people post on YouTube that you may watch for half an hour or an hour because you're interested in it. So the motivated reasoning again is that the, the bad side of it is we do all this weird stuff with our cognitive biases. The positive thing is that if we're actually interested in something, it does seem like people are willing to invest the time to ex explore things that they are actually interested in. Now, me as a poli-sci guy, my concern or what I'm sad about is that there are a lot of people who are completely apolitical or disinterested in it. And my thing is, well, how can we get people more engaged with the political stuff? But that's me. You know, uh, if it's sports or if it's whatever, you know, great. But I, I think that people can show that they do have attention for things that they are interested in. But it's that that is increasingly we're fragmenting into these little issue publics that are becoming more and more selective and can because that's that's what's media's the social media in particular is catering to. News media is sometimes referred to as a historical record. It is a way to historicize everything that happens on a daily basis. So does that mean that news media should have access to all types of information or seek out all types of information in order to cover it and quote unquote historicize it, or shouldn't they? So to wrap up our discussion, I wanted to know what Professor Rubens and Aya's thoughts are on bad news. Whether there is such a thing as bad news or whether there are times when news media have crossed lines and shouldn't have covered something. No, I, I don't think there is such thing as bad news. Uh, sorry, uh, there can be bad coverage. Yes, where the coverage is just abysmally bad. It's not informative. It's sensationalistic. It's it's wrong. You know, the, you can have bad bad coverage. Let's say, but I I think that you know I, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of something that. You know, may, maybe if I go back, I, you know, um, maybe some things get overcovered because of the sensationalistic nature of it or whatever. But I don't think that makes it bad news. No, I, I'm going to stick with that. No, yeah, I think I think it's exactly what the professor said, which is bad coverage. And at least from my own experience is specifically bad framing, uh, which is um something that not only has it like not only is the issue that it's being framed in a sensationalistic way but the issue is that it also will then have impact because people will then be influenced by that um and will then act on those um you know beliefs or that kind of framing um like when things like, at least from my own experience, when like uh, Muslim issues or say Arabian issues um, get covered, it is often framed in very, um, either just very like Western imperialist <laughs> kind of ways. Um, and 
or just completely like uh like inconsiderate or um so like in France when things like you know new like there's this one um <laughs> there's like these this one candidate sorry <laughs> there's this one candidate that's like trying to um ban like muslim in, in names yes like muhammad and stuff oh my yes. god <laughs> yeah yeah, there's, yeah. It's, but it's just one candidate but obviously like it gets around the president um, no 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 yeah. um there's it's one of the far right candidates in france national front i think so yeah it might be yeah. one of those um and he's and it's just it's interesting um because i mean i i see it as just completely absurd but some of the some of the ways that it's being framed as like it's just a continuation of like french secularism mm -hmm. um <laughs> well which, like that thing in quebec right yeah or like in quebec the secularism law it it that bans any public official from wearing religious stuff um i remember so vividly like the the one english debate we had uh for the election a couple months ago where the the first question they ask um the quebec um the Bloc Québécois leader is about that, I think, Bill Bill 21. Um, and he just completely um, attacks and reframes it as not a bill limiting other people of faith to, you know, display their own faith, um, but more so about Quebec values and Quebec being able to protect its culture. Um, which yeah, I it's really interesting. Like the, I guess like the push and pull of different frames, and some of them can be really just incendiary. Absolutely, but sorry, and I'm I'm not justifying any of this, but but pretend I'm a journalist, white guy, older guy, and I'm covering this issue slash story. I'm going to be hyper paranoid about trying to making sure that I'm not influ like so that the frame is a byproduct of in part what my sources are telling me, but also my own unwitting biases. Like culture is such a huge component of a lot of this, and it's something we didn't talk about. Is that what frequently when people talk about biases, they're talking about intentional efforts to skew news in a particular way. The more important skewing happens unintentionally because, you know, as a, as a white dude who's, who's, a, who's a byproduct of a, of a colonial settler society getting all the privilege that came from that, you know, that has an impact on how I see the world. Now, as an academic, I, I, I try to question a lot of that and I try to push back against it ideologically and all that other stuff. But, you know, what if you have these cultural biases and you don't even realize it and they influence the storytelling and how you tell it? So I think this is where audiences matter, where when you come across a frame that is ethnocentric or racist or insert whichever adjective you want, it is important to raise 
to raise the question and maybe try not, I mean, the, the, there are effective and less effective ways of raising these issues, but I think it is a value and maybe don't post it on like a comment, but write to the journalists. They, the, most of them have emails, right? You know, send an email to them and just say, hey, you know, gotta say, I applaud your ability, I applaud your efforts at trying to confront a, a controversial contentious issue. However, have you considered all the stuff that your frame has omitted? You know, because frames are, frames are about selection and salience. A frame talks, makes it, there's a choice to talk about this aspect of it and ignore this other stuff that will recede into the background. Is it, well, maybe the stuff that's receded into the background is important and it should be brought forward and maybe we could reframe this into something a bit more constructive or, you know. So, yeah, I, I have no idea where I was going mm -hmm. with that, but I, I just, it, it. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's also important that it is done through something like email rather than on social media, because a lot of what I see on social media is people trying to quote unquote educate but it does just come across as canceling or trying to just, you know, take away from the original um, work or from the person and to label them in a certain way, um, rather than actually making any useful discussion out of it. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, especially this conversation just really highlighted just how painfully human we are in everything we do. <laughs> I try to be painfully human at least once or twice a day. I, I, I it's an important element of my lifestyle. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 would, I would add my voice to that. But uh, no, I just want to thank you for, uh, for asking me to be part of this lovely conversation. I really enjoyed that. And I hope I was not a total disappointment. <laughs> no, not at all. very fun. Thank you for coming. So yeah, yeah no, it was my pleasure. And, and thank you so much. And with that, we end this episode of The Message on newsworthiness and the play between politics and media. A huge thank you to Professor Roten for taking time out of his busy schedule and joining us for this conversation, offering all his insight and experience to deepen the conversation. And Aya for offering her personal experiences with all the concepts that we've talked about today, which I think a lot of people relate to and be grateful for. Thank you to Liz and Elisa for giving me the chance to take over the podcast this week and to host this episode. I hope you all enjoyed listening, um, and I want to share that I'm really excited that in the future episodes, we may feature more members of the Medium Volume 48 team, and so you may get to meet more of the team. Our sixth issue, which is themed around celebrating Indigenous voices, is out on stands now, so be sure to collect your copies from the stands across campus or check out our website. Another exciting piece of news is that our first magazine of this volume, called Isolation, featuring stories, articles, poems, and other creative work from the Medium team, releases Monday, November 1st, so keep your eyes out for that. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you all have a great week ahead.